Gone are the days, are the centuries even, when government officials retired to become poets in gardens of their own design, as here in Suju happened for so long. A gnarled shaft of limestone here, there a willow's green rocks swaying above the fish pond, a zigzag bridge to a pagoda where, far from the capital, one could finally attend to matters of real importance, the moon's reflection troubled by a carp. That's a poem called political poem by an American writer and poet called Jeffrey Harrison. But I guess maybe he was living in China for a while because he referenced mm. here in Suzhou. But I thought it would be a good intro to today's episode where we're going to spend about half the time discussing politicians, the current state of career politicians, mm -hmm. and how in an ideal degrowth future, we like to call the solar scene. Yes, that's uh, the name for it. Politicians can come from a more varied range of backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was a good poem to start with because we have this really romantic idea, or at least I do, of the poet general. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, certainly. The leader who contemplates a lot, yeah. takes walks in the garden, as that poem says. But to... also can direct a military, yeah. can direct economics, all this kind of thing. Mm. And that's a really, I think that's a, that's a very noble goal to aspire to. Yeah. And I think it's had its influence historically and even today still captures the imagination. I'm thinking about Dune. Mm. That, that kind of uh, archetype was explored a lot in that recent movie. But building a polis, building a government around that kind of ideal, that model mm -hmm. of, in, of an individual is maybe not the most secure and sustainable and smart way of doing things, mm -hmm. which is effectively why you have multiple people who can all bring a part of the, the poet general, the samurai who writes haikus, the, uh, the contemplator, as you said, or the philosopher mm -hmm. king. You know, we kind yes. of, that's what, we split that up. And that's kind of what a cabinet is. Mm -hmm. That's what the different branches of government do. Not everyone has to be everything, but I feel like it's best when everyone is something. Yes, when we come together to create this ideal, because no one person will be perfect. That's why we usually work together as teams, because you could have one person who on the surface is perfect. That's probably a good thing for aspiring children who are looking up to their politicians and leaders. However, you need a team to actually execute the perfection. Otherwise, there's going to be failure. There's going to be a greed of power. Yeah, a tyrant. Yes. Tyrant energy. Mm -hmm. So how did you approach researching and thinking about the idea of a politician who is more than just a career politician? Okay, so I wanted to look at historical examples mm -hmm. because today it seems so rare. Yeah, I feel like I if, agree. You, if you ask people off the street, oh, what are some examples of politicians, world leaders who maybe weren't always in politics? Mm -hmm. It's going to be the same five or six names. Yeah. And that's a failing on the education system because probably only seven or eight names people can mention from politics anyway, but everyone's mm -hmm. just going to say Trump, maybe Reagan, mm. maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger, and it's obviously going to be US-centric. Yes. Maybe in Canada in the 2018 election, we had like a TV personality slash businessman called Kevin O'Leary. Mm -hmm. He ran for prime minister. Mm -hmm. Didn't get very far, I don't think. But no. he was kind of uh, trying to capture that Trump energy. Actually, I think that happened in a lot of countries, like celebrities. Oh, I can do this. And there's, mm -hmm. an, there's an easy base, maybe, depending on the country that I can appeal to. And it won't require much experience, just name recognition, basically. Mm 
-hmm. there's only a few that people will recognize from modern times, at least that their stories have become, you know, entrenched in the consciousness. But looking historically, it's like it's not even mentioned because that's just what it usually was. That's what I found Like as that well. was the default until, say, the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Until basically the founding fathers in America, from what I could tell. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were obviously systems that weren't democracies, mm -hmm. which are kind of career politicians, quote-unquote. Yeah. Monarchies, mm -hmm. uh, nobility, oligarchies, where people are born into it and just mm -hmm. stay in it. But in terms of elected officials remaining in those spaces for decades on end, seems to me like a relatively new phenomenon. Yes. It's only because people live longer now. Yeah, and it would often be philosophers who have proven themselves, architects, engineers, who have proven to the community their value. And then the community said, we want you to lead us in this next yeah, chapter. Or represent us. Yes. On a, on a bigger scale. I mean, it could be a farmer. Mm -hmm. It could be, it could be, any, it depends on the community, obviously. I had this quote um, because I wanted to kind of start the conversation by actually defining, well, what's wrong with a career politician? Mm -hmm. We talked about it a little bit last week, but I wanted to go deeper into it this week. So I have a list of pros and cons. But first I have this quote that I saw, which says, politics has become the end in itself. Those who make it are mostly qualified just to play the game, but mm -hmm. not to govern. Yeah. So it's this idea that the game or politics is now divorced from what it's supposed to be, mm -hmm. which we touched on last week. Um, about oftentimes it's easy to miss the forest for the trees. I think mm -hmm. that's the expression. That was a quote from the, the Sydney Morning Herald, which was an article that said, career politicians aren't qualified to run the country, which I think was a funny title because mm. that's what people who are, let's say, advocates of career politicians often say about quote-unquote outsiders. Mm -hmm. They're not qualified to run the country. This article kind of made the point that when you are in such an insular lifestyle, mm -hmm of let's say federal politics for many a year, you become so divorced from everyday life that you are not qualified to understand it, represent it, change it, have any opinions on it really. And that was one of my, my, the big cons of career politicians I could think of. There's a big potential to be so distanced from the people you're supposed to be representing that you don't see the problems. You don't understand the effects of the decisions being made. Mm -hmm, certainly this is obviously a big issue with centralized power in general i would say because if you have one capital but a country which is the size of a continent then you don't really understand what's going on in the far reaches of the of the land mm -hmm. that's even a argument against not just the career politicians but really really centralized government and i don't know if you want to talk about this now or later no we can yeah okay one of my favorite parts about the degrowth philosophy is big government but on small scales yeah i like that so i think government's incredibly important i don't like it how it is right now i try and steer away from it because it gets me frustrated however i imagine in the ideal future there would be really strong governments but it would just be within a 30 to 50 kilometer radius like Ooh. it wouldn't be this thousand kilometer wide like you should be able to oh, there's an issue over in this community, just go there instead of having to either take a plane to get there, rely on someone relaying information to you, and maybe you know someone in that community who can give you the report instead of having to rely on these reactionary policymaking. Whereas I feel like if you were in a smaller area, you could either be proactive or 
react immediately instead of, oh, there was a flood here? Mm. Why did that devastate so many houses? Why is there no infrastructure to support the people who now don't have homes and food and access to clean water? Like, you'd, you would know why, and usually you'd be able to prevent these disasters it's from true. happening. And the average person would care more. Yeah, certainly. It, I mean, that sounds so bad, but because it's closer. Yeah, and you'd know the politician. And I imagine in our big government, small area, it, there'd be a lot more rotation. It wouldn't just be, okay, four years this party, four years this party, back and forth, back and forth. Okay. I imagine it'd either be like, oh, so we have this party who their platform's all about food security, but then like, okay, that issue's been kind of fixed. So next year we're going to work on someone who's really into farming, hmm. kind of a, a slower transition. Well, yeah, the thing with the small, the localized areas, let's say we're talking about a city, is that there isn't generally, sometimes there is, but there isn't generally such polarization in the politics of the people. Mm-hmm. So there isn't such... I don't even think there would there would be such fierce elections. Of course, mm-hmm. competition's important, and of course, different parties, different opinions are important. But it wouldn't be the kind of fierce dog eat dog, neighbor on neighbor mm-hmm. um, opposition that we frequently um, characterized federal politics as. Yeah, and that would allow the politicians to focus on what politicians should focus on, which yeah. is enacting change instead of just getting reelected. And for what it's worth, I also think the people would be happier because oh, yeah. um, you, you would essentially have more say over the government of your life, of mm-hmm. the world immediately around you because you, you would be one vote out of, say, 100,000 as opposed to, I don't know, 100 million. Mm-hmm. And also, I guess there would be more options. This type of governance, this type of decentralized power would lead to more variety within a country, I suppose. Like. Mm-hmm city by city, province by province, state by state, there would be more variation mm-hmm. in laws, in, uh, I don't know, tax spending, in just mm-hmm. the, the general look, feel, culture of the places within mm-hmm. the overall nation. So you'd kind of have more options as to where to live. Mm-hmm. I think that's how it would work, would work. Yeah, and you proposed earlier today to me the idea that there didn't need to be like an Ottawa or a Washington. Yeah, this was just a... I didn't really think this through, so I don't want people to judge me by it, but we can mention it. <laughs> but I thought it was cool because before you said it, I had the same idea as you were trying to formulate the thought. I thought the same thing, so it's interesting that we both did, perhaps because we're both researching this topic this week. But it's that, okay, so in Canada, you'd have your municipalities, so like your small, small-scale governments, and then yeah. you'd have your provincial government, perhaps, to kind of help coordinate. And then each year, perhaps, the federal election would be which province do we want to represent us this year on the global scale? Or yeah. Who do, which province do we want to be in charge of facilitating conversations across all the provinces? Yeah, I don't know if this is much more than just a symbolic difference, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But the symbol, I think, is important because you'd essentially have every four years or however long your term was a rotating capital. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that would make people feel more represented. I think so. It's kind of like how the Olympics goes somewhere different each year mm-hmm. or each, uh, each four years. Yeah, there'd have to be some type of accounting for the fact that one province has way more people than yeah, the other for the ones. Vote, certainly, yeah. But I think it would be an interesting exercise even just to think about. Different rotating capitals. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really cool idea. And instead of, I suppose, replacing the idea of parties would just be the places. Yeah. Oh, we really like how Ontario is running things. Mm-hmm. We're going to let them be the base of decision-making for the next four years. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's fun. 
Yeah, I think it is as well. It lends well to my example that I picked for an example of a non-career politician. Do you mind if I no, jump into yeah, it? Yeah, say it. Okay, so in the 60s in Brazil, it was suffering a lot from rural to urban migration. So a lot of farms were shutting down because farms were being bought up and so on. So people were migrating to the cities and the cities did not have the infrastructure to deal with so much rural to urban migration. So there was a lot of what are called favelas or just like shanty towns yeah, mm-hmm. popping up around the outskirts of the cities and not good for anyone, obviously. Mm-hmm. Too much stress on all of the infrastructure. So the president of the country said, I want to redesign the capital or make a new capital is specifically what he said. Um, so he like put out a call to all the architects in the nation. And then one said, he literally just drew a bird and said, this is my plan. And it was just a, a little cross bird. And he's like, I want a city to look, look like a bird. President was like, you go for it. So in four years, he built this city from the ground up into this network of highways and it was just like super urban, super modern, all centered around cars. The president was like, bravo, bravo. We need to make every other city in Brazil look like this. Great. But then there was this one town called Curitiba, which between the 60s and 70s, like those 10 years, their population over doubled because of all the migration. And they were like, If we adopt this highway model, no one's going to benefit. And all of our heritage is going to be lost. There was literally a plan made from 1960 to 1965 to just completely replicate the bird model. Mm -hmm. And that included ripping down a ton of like historic landmarks, cutting up the few parks that they still had, and so on. But then this one architect who literally just graduated um, university, he was like, no, we're not doing this. And then the people were like, yeah, we're not doing this. Even though we're all kind of suffering right now, this isn't the way to stop people living in poverty. And so as an architect for four years, he worked to make a plan and the UN was working with him and he made this plan for this new model. And Curitiba is now like considered one of the greenest cities on earth Wow! because of the way that he did it. And after a few years of just working on it as a passion project, basically, he got elected as mayor Mm. and then he worked as mayor for a few years and got it done and it was mainly because the people liked him but also trusted him because he had expertise in the area of urban planning and architecture and what I think is funny is there's so many examples of him he said okay this main shopping street we're going to make it a pedestrian street and all the shop owners were like no, it's going to lower our business. People love pulling up their cars out front and shopping and loading all their shopping in and then leaving. And then he said, I'm doing it. And they were like, well, we're going to file a lawsuit against you because you're going to take all our business. And so he went to the head construction guy and was like, I want this done over the weekend so that the law office will be closed (laughs) and they cannot file against me. And he's like, this is a four-month project. And he said do it in 48 hours. And he did it in 72 hours. Then all the shop owners were like, oh, you were right. And that was kind of the start of it all. (laughs) That's so um, problematic when it comes to the idea of a democracy. But (laughs) He has a good quote about about democracy that made me laugh. But it's because, like, you need to think outside the box. Of course, yeah. So I have two quotes from him that I think sum up his 
reign as mayor really well. Right. So one of them is that um, democracy is not a consensus. Democracy is a conflict that is well managed, uh-huh. which I think is honest because it's democracy isn't a consensus. It's a compromise. Mm. And I think it's a really good way of thinking about it. Like we have to manage the conflict well in order to keep functioning as a society. And his other quote is, if you want creativity, cut one zero out of the budget. But if you want sustainability, cut two. And I thought that was really good. (laughs) And when he was redesigning the city, he was very efficient about it. So at the time, the trend was to build subway systems. But he said that it takes way too much money, way too many resources. So what I'm going to do is a bus system. And so he designed this little bus system, which lowered the commute from the periphery of the town to the center of the town from like hours to 20 minutes for like everyone. And another cool thing about the system is that you can exchange garbage, which they recycle 70% of, so I guess just recyclables, for either produce or tokens to get onto the train. The bus? The, the bus, yeah. And he also, because it was kind of inefficient at first, his goal was to make it the most efficient way to get around so people didn't have a choice to own a car. They had to own, they had to ride the bus because it was so much quicker. Like, they didn't have to, but... It was the most logical thing to do. Nice. So he created these little things, which are now used in 300 cities across the world. They're called tubes. Okay. So they're on the median. It's like the center line of the roads, Mm -hmm. these little tubes. In order to get into the tube, you tap your card or you pay your fare. So when the bus pulls up to the side of the tube, you just get on and it goes. You don't have to tap your card once you're on the bus or exchange anything. Okay. So you basically, you you pay your fee when you get into the bus stop rather than on the bus. It makes sense. Makes sense. And they're in the median, so it's like they're not on both sides of the road. There's just the one. Yep. And it's super efficient, and everyone loves it and uses it. And I, it said 90% of the population uses the bus system. That's pretty wild. So he's a, he's an architect. He's an architect, which yes. Which is, um, I think, to describe that in really broad historical classification, I would say he's half an engineer and half an artist. Yes. Something like that, but with a with a fundamental knowledge and grounding of the streets, mm-hmm. you know, the, the soul of the city. <laughs> yeah. On that note, we should um, have a question about transportation for next week. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. What are some cool degrowth transportation ideas? I think that's just a good place to start. I think it's a good place to start as well. I'm going to keep going with my cons for career politicians. The next one is that I think they can often be less well-rounded. These aren't mm-hmm. absolutes, but they're just trends that I've kind of observed. Less well-rounded and therefore also less creative and you kind of touched on it last week, less humble. Mm-hmm. I suppose this comes from just surrounding yourself with politicians. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of this, this quote I was reading or I was listening to an interview from a famous film director. I don't remember who it was. I think it was Werner Herzog, actually. And they asked him what some advice he would give to other filmmakers. And he said, read. And they said about film, and he was like, no, not about film, about everything other than film. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't read, if you're not constantly learning and exposing yourself to things that aren't movies, Mm -hmm. you'll have nothing to make movies about. Yeah. So it's kind of like in politics, if all you're reading about is movies, you might become really good at making movies, but you don't have any subject. Mm -hmm. You don't have any direction. Yeah, certainly. So being well-rounded is definitely important. And I think that's that's a lot of the appeal of the, the politician who farms. I was reading some of the founding fathers of America in preparation for this episode. And there's this Roman leader called Cincinnatus, who was very famous because 
in times of turmoil, ancient Rome would basically appoint a a dictator mm -hmm. in times of like uh, military turmoil, just mm -hmm. so they could work quicker and more efficient, and uh, no time for that democracy nonsense, basically. And it was this guy Cincinnatus at one point, and he was just a farmer, mm. and he came in, won them the war, did a bunch of really good stuff, and then kind of uh, swore off politics and returned to his farm. Mm -hmm. And that ideal, I think, has been um, has been somewhat forgotten, mm -hmm. I guess, recently. Yeah, it's like if you get into politics, you get into politics. Exactly. But and that's the thing with um, even if you had a rotating capital mm -hmm. that, like you mentioned earlier, just that saying of "Oh, well, he's in Washington," or "Yeah, mm -hmm. he went to Ottawa," that wouldn't even be a thing mm -hmm. because there wouldn't be one seat of it. There wouldn't be one. I hate to use the word swamp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the last con that I had is that you can often get caught up in winning versus progress, and of course, I think this is filtered down largely to citizens, unfortunately, mm -hmm. where perhaps you don't celebrate progress unless it came from your side, mm -hmm. etc. Which is definitely the most toxic idea, and it's in direct contradiction to this concept that I went of, which is called civic virtue, which basically refers to all the habits which are important for the success of society. Mm -hmm. And those include some level of engagement, pride, call it patriotism, involvement, mm -hmm. which, is, um, which is something that I think is often looked down on. When I was looking at examples of modern civic virtues, mm -hmm. it talked about things like the Boy Scouts and how they had to recite something at the start of their group meetings. And I feel like that specific type of education is now almost always rather cynically referred to as indoctrination or something mm -hmm. like that. It's not always the case. It, you know, it is an important thing that people care about how things are run. Yes. You know, that people love their place. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a, that's a very unpopular trait these days. Yeah. I know I don't really have it. So. <laughs> no, we're both almost, I'd say we're like 3% patriotic. Yeah, but I wish I was more, you know? But patriotic to the land, to the people, mm. not to the flag to Ontario. That's what I think. Because in our degrown society, I imagine you would need to care about the mountains and the sea. Even if you live on the East Coast, you need to care about the mountains. Even if you live inland, you need to care about the sea. I think you'd be a really proud New Yorker or something like that. Mm -hmm. if, if we're talking about degrown New York. I think that's a good trait. Okay, I see what you mean. You know what I'm talking about? Care about your town. Yes. Yeah. To, to actually care about it. Now it's like everyone's that cool kid in high school, mm -hmm. which is most kids in high school. Yeah. Certainly in my, in my high school. Mm -hmm. But often I feel like when you look back in old movies in high schools, even the, the cynical people, even the, the cool kids, everyone was like dressing up for spirit day. Mm -hmm. But now it's like no one dresses up for spirit day. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, because we don't have any... Because we're so cynical about every system of authority, yes, yes, including our high schools or our like well, boys' saying, it club. starts early. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's something that we need to come take back in a new in a new way. Do you want to hear some of the pros of career politicians? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, if you were, we were both paying attention when Biden was inaugurated earlier this year and when he won the election. So I think you would have heard most of these pros then. 
the the primary one which is mentioned is that they are well connected mm-hmm. and potentially better at negotiating more effective at getting things done because they know the people in congress mm. or senate for hundreds of years or however long they've been alive <laughs> and uh, also we should we should touch on the fact that i think at least politicians are too old in general yeah. to the point that it's not representative of their citizenry at all mm-hmm. i think having older people in power makes sense we don't want a bunch of like 16 year olds no i think that i think of course it would probably always skew older yes. on average but i don't think it should be exclusively mm-hmm. really old people yeah we need wisdom we don't need I'm trying to think of something quippy yeah but i can't no, i don't know um <laughs> but that's certainly that's certainly you know that kind of savviness that comes from being around for a long time mm-hmm. that's what most people would say is the number one trait for excelling in politics Mm-hmm. whether that's a good thing i don't know but it, it certainly is the case right now mm-hmm. so uh bureaucratic and so much about wheeling and dealing and taking that person to golf so that you can discuss mm-hmm. you know little stuff like that yeah what do you think to that in the degrowth world i think connectedness is super super important yeah, it always be right i mean i remember when the the woman who's the mayor in like my hometown she was a teacher for like 35 years and then she said I want to be a, the mayor and there'd never been a female mayor and she was just like I'm going to do it and then she did it and she's been in office for like 15 years but she had all the connections from being a teacher of course she knew all the populace when they grew exactly. up right exactly yeah. so it's like that's super important and that's why she's so successful she knows the town hall and she knows the um police station from when they would like sponsor school plays and yeah. like all those things like you can have connections in other ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't that's a good point. Just being an involved citizen, but that type of life, those types of relationships there's a large scale dissociation which we talked about on the podcast which has generally eroded those. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, teachers is one of the few exceptions, but yeah. most professions you're not interacting with a lot of people in your town mm-hmm. anymore. But certainly just from a concrete practical sense being a good negotiator Mm-hmm. is, an, is so. of course an important trait but politics is probably not the only uh, career. career in which you can hone that skill yeah certainly um another pro is that a career politician might be more trained to be more diplomatic and more stately mm-hmm. you often hear in media oh wow he looks very presidential he's wearing a suit and tie and he mm-hmm. holds himself well and those things seem superficial but of course they're not they're mm-hmm. important because on two levels one the people want to feel like they're being represented by someone who takes it seriously mm-hmm. and two when you are conversing with other cities other politicians other countries mm-hmm. on an international scale you want to put, be putting your place's best foot forward mm-hmm. and you don't want to make a fool of yourself yeah and politicians are seasoned in not misspeaking yeah, for the most part of course. and remaining level-headed so those things are certainly important but i do think that kind of training i mentioned last week that i think there should be education and rhetoric should be more universal like it shouldn't mm-hmm. only be a tiny percent of the population who can give a speech convincingly mm-hmm. yeah that should be i mean that's what basically what we're doing here mm-hmm. i don't know if you know but the whole reason my ulterior motive for starting a podcast was just so i could practice to eventually run That reminds me of a good question perhaps we can ask. 
about education for degrowth. Okay. Which I know we will have a series on in the future. But I think it would be a good worthwhile conversation topic for next week. How do we educate for degrowth? Yeah, that's good. And the last probe I had for a career politician is something like pattern recognition, meaning they are more well-versed in the various political situations they will come across from perhaps being more familiar with the history of their place or just politics in general and having decades of experience. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know how this one plays out. I know what we should do kind of thing. Yeah. Which is why I think having people around who are older, more experienced in politics is certainly a good thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think the career politician is necessarily always bad. Mm-hmm. There's definitely pros to it, but I don't think I don't think it should be the majority of politicians. Mm-hmm. And it certainly shouldn't be everyone, that's for sure. But yeah. I think having a few old heads like that makes a lot of sense. A good example, perhaps, that comes to mind is like Bernie has always been a politician yeah, at course. heart, even mm-hmm. in university. But he was an advocate, like first and foremost, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like those are the types of career politicians we need, people who have experience in protests and advocating for causes. And that's politics, but mm. I think it's a different type of politics than wheeling and dealing on the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I had this other quote that I wanted to mention, which is um, kind of a, a devil's advocate quote, which is, if you don't allow politics to be an option for a career, you're only going to get politicians who don't need to have a career, mm-hmm. i.e. the rich and corrupt. Yes. Which is why Trump, uh, Reagan, Arnold... Um, another candidate for the recent American election was Michael Bloomberg, who's another billionaire, mm-hmm. which is why most of these quote-unquote outsiders have been very, very rich mm-hmm. and also famous because it's like if you're trying to break into it mm-hmm. and not start from the ground up, to, the only way to kind of uh, match the renown and the, let's say, the budget of the established parties or the other candidates is usually through a lot of money. It's kind of a, a pay-to-play model. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, leveraging your fame a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's definitely something to, to point out. But I think that might only be applicable to federal elections. Yeah, I think it's a little bit less on the small scale. Mm. I do remember recently the conservative party of my, like, riding, they elected, like, a local musician. Oh, wow. I think with the sole intention of, oh, he's famous, we can use the Trump model, and yeah. no one voted for him. Really? Yeah. Like, it was very low. So it was kind of mind-blowing. Because it's normally, like, a like a decent split. But everyone was like, this is a joke. Why? Because he's incompetent? Yeah. There should, of course, be a level of competence. We, yes. We, we <laughs> prefaced the whole thing with this last week, is that we're not advocating for... It's not a good thing to know nothing about politics. Yeah. Of course, that doesn't make any sense. Or to know nothing about economics, or to know nothing about your country, mm-hmm. or history. That's not... That's never a good thing. It's only no. good to know a lot about that. Yes. The conversation is whether politics is the only avenue to learn those things. Mm-hmm. Speaking of fungus, that leads me to the organism speaking of, of the week. what? <laughs> fungus. <laughs> were, we, were we speaking of fungus? Uh, no, parasites maybe. Okay. <laughs> but the organism of the week. I got to do it this week. Very excited. And I picked Lingzi, a.k.a. the reishi mushroom. Okay. Which Lingzi. is... Yeah, which is a very famous mushroom. It's the most famous, I might say. Really? Do you want to see a picture? I would have gone for toad as the most famous mushroom. 
He's a bit more charismatic, but... Okay, Wingsy. You want me to describe it? Yep. So it kind of looks like what I would imagine a city on Mars would look like. Mm-hmm. Like a Jetson city. Yes. There's these big, long, red stalks, deep red, mm-hmm. with these kind of orange saucers on top. Yeah. Or plates. It also reminds me, some of them are kind of white with little yellow yolks in. Mm-hmm. So they look like uh, Haribo eggs. Yes. That's what, oh, but they're all, they're all on a white base. Yes. So reishi mushrooms, the color scheme I would describe as the 70s. They have a gradient of like this burnt red to a white. So it's like kind of a, a very 70s color scheme. They're not psychedelic despite the colors. And they grow usually at the base of decadus trees, mainly maples. But they only grow on like two to three out of 10,000 trees. Oh, wow. Okay. So they really rely on cultivation, which is why I picked them for this week. So they're super useful. They're antioxidant rich. They fight depression. They regulate blood sugar, anti-carcinogenic. They also boost immunity and focus. So they're the super mushroom. Yes, I like picking superfoods because I think they're cool. And... They can grow on logs, which is what it was growing on the photo I showed you, Okay. on piles of sawdust and <laughs> piles of wood chips. And so I was picturing... Politicians reminded you of this? No, I, the next question reminded me of okay, this. Okay, okay. So I was picturing in a food secure community, perhaps you have piles of compost, you have piles of like these things that are normally considered wasteful, but you could cultivate some reishi on top. Yeah, sure. Pretty cool. And they're really pretty and cool. And neither of us really like mushrooms, but they're the one thing that I think if I could convince myself to like any food, it would be mushrooms. I wish I liked mushrooms as well. They're really cool. They seem very good for you. They yes. seem to be key to a lot of uh, meatless cooking. Mm-hmm. And there's just such a variety. I'm sure I like a lot of mushrooms. That's the thing. We've only had I really literally tried one many. type. Yeah. I've been seeing on the internet these ones that are called puff shrooms, and they're like this big. They just seem so, they, they look unhealthy to me. Because they look like marshmallows. No, they look, um, it looks like uh, you'd breathe it in and it would kill you. Well, the thing is, there's a lot of deadly mushrooms. Yeah, that, there's a lot that, of deadly I mushrooms. I don't trust that. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're the future. And also you can make the like mushroom leather out of these ones. Oh, that's true. Yeah, which mushroom is leather. Cool. Yeah. And that leads us to the second question for this week. And it is, what would a food secure community look like? Last week we were talking about what food security is. But I picked a couple of examples to use to demonstrate what a food secure community looks like. Okay. So my first one, universities across the world have these social enterprise teams basically that compete and they all make these little communities called Enactus or they all make these little businesses and then their little businesses kind of, they present them and compete, but they're not just selling iPhones. They're selling usually a product which helps the community or not even selling. It might just be a non-for-profit that Yeah, I didn't created. realize you'd be just using this uh, podcast to plug your own product. No, I'm not using my own product. <laughs> Alicia yeah. was part of Enectus. That's why she knows so much about it. Yes, I'm using <laughs> the, the project from the other school in Halifax. Okay. So St. Mary's, they went to nationals and they might have won that. Na- they definitely won nationals, but they might have won the world competition with this project or at least come second. And it's called Square Roots. They're mission statement is to feed every person. Pretty bold. Concise. Concise. Ambitious. Yes. 
And while feeding every person, they were looking, well, where's the food going? We know we have enough food in Canada, at least to feed everyone. So why isn't it in the hands of people? And they wanted to tackle food waste with their project. So $31 million of food end up in landfills every year in Canada. And food waste is super, super bad for the environment because it releases a lot of methane. Methane's worse than carbon when it comes to emissions. So they did it in two ways. They partner with farms and grocery stores, farmers markets across the town. And I think even the province to get all the undesirables, the little, the apples that have wormholes in them or the potatoes that are too small. And they gather it all together and every week they just make these bundles of food that is sufficient for the week. Like they're not just giving you like two apples and a potato, like it's enough to make meals for a week. It's vegetarian for the most part, but it's still sufficient. And then they obviously supplement it with some non-perishables of pasta and what have you. And they just give them away or give them away for a small fee like you can choose. So you can either choose to pay like $10 for the bundle or nothing like and on the kind of sliding scale. So it's like if you can't afford it, they're still going to give it to you. And when you pay the $10, you're subsidizing the cost for the people who can't afford it. Mm -hmm. They hand it out all over the town and the municipality because obviously not everyone can make it to this central location. So they make it as accessible as possible. And it's been super successful in creating food security because, one, the food is local. It's not like they're relying on Walmart's leftover food. They're Mm. relying on local food. And another thing they do is they do these tokens that they give out. And you can get the tokens. Usually, I think it is with the food bundles. Like, you'd get your food bundle plus a token or two. And you can take those to a lot of restaurants across the town. And they'll give you food, basically. And a lot of them do at the end of the day. So it's like between three and five, you could bring your token in. It's a lot of restaurants have a lot of food left over at the end of the day of because they bulk produce it. Yeah. And they just give it to you for the token. And then the tokens go back into this whole system. They also do a thing where they make, I think, like out of a lot of random food, because even like some of the food waste isn't actually something you're going to eat. Like you're not going to eat like carrot peels. You're not going to eat... Onion skins. Yeah. So they use a bunch of stuff like that and they make, I think they make like beer out of it. They make a lot of different like products out of the food waste, which can then be consumed and they give it away or okay. for a small cost. So it's this really like circular system. Yeah. But it creates a lot of food security. It sounds like a really good idea. Do you think things like this spring up because of issues? Like, I mean, do you think it should have to boil down to a bunch of university students to feed the hungry? No. So how do you think that could otherwise be <laughs> I think... It's a great initiative, though, but yeah. I'm just wondering whether something like that should be mandated that food waste is, is minimized as much as possible, whether it should be a government organization exactly like that one, yeah, or whether it's fine that it is just a, a school or a, a group of do-gooders. I feel like in the way things are right now, it's important that it's small. Okay. Because everyone wants to support it. Because oh, it's yeah. a bunch of kids. That's in true. The Maybe community. if it was a government, nah, I don't. Yeah. Care. Yeah, right. And like it's like that. you know the people getting the food, you know the people handing out the food. But if it was the government, it'd be like eh, a little bit less. People would also be more. It sounds judgmental, but people would also be much more willing to exploit it mm-hmm. if it was a government program. I feel. That's. 
that's likely. I'm talking about people who can't afford food but just want free food or something like that. Yeah, certainly. Just before you say your second example, I wanted to get back to the career politicians because that's something I didn't mention. It's, it's kind of an alternative to our typical representative democracy where we just elect someone and that's our place's person. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more like jury duty. It's called a citizen's assembly, mm-hmm. which is where a group of randomly selected citizens are organized to deliberate on some issue. Yes. And the weight of their findings can vary. Mm-hmm. The main criticism of this that I saw, which is pretty common, is, well, do you really want a bunch of uneducated randoms effectively forming a government and making mm-hmm. decisions for you? And my answer to this would be, if you think that a random pool of people are just uneducated and inadequate to make any kind of decisions together, mm-hmm. then there's something wrong yeah, it boils down to the education. And, um, and it also, that, that reply, that response, that criticism is so indicative of the general contempt that I feel people have for each other these days. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we'd rather elect a career politician than let other people mm-hmm. on our level try and make decisions. It's, uh, it's very rough. Mm-hmm. The education is so important. I mean, people should just come out of school effectively being able to do a passable job in government. Mm-hmm. At least being able to form opinions on things, being able to read things critically and, you know, understand things. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of when you, you slowly teach me about football over the years. <laughs> but you always say you're like, the goalkeepers know how to score penalties super well. Yeah. And the defense know how to attack really well because it's like you need to know a little bit about every position yeah, on the pitch or else you're not going to be successful. Yeah. And I feel like that's what we all need to be like, and especially the politicians. Like, okay, yes, you're a striker. Yes, you're a politician. Or yes, you're a farmer. But you need to know a little bit about all these other areas or else, like, what's the point? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying everyone has been expert on everything Mm -hmm. because that's, as we said at the very beginning of the episode, that's why we have a bunch of people. Yes. So you have a bunch of different specialists. But everyone should be okay at everything. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's not too much to ask from education. (laughs) Rather than everyone being a whiz at derivatives mm-hmm. in, and integrals in calculus. Yeah. Doesn't make much sense. Let us have debate club. <laughs> That's what I'm crying for. Is your second example your last one? Yes. Do you want to analyze what I came up with for this question? Yes. Which I, I took very literally because the question was, what does a food secure slash food sovereign mm-hmm. neighborhood look like? So I drew it, but it is labeled for you. Thank you, thank you. So Aaron's drawings always bring me joy. (laughs) This is my first time seeing it, and my initial thought was that it was going to be a community garden at the center, but no, it's a feast. (laughs) (laughs) Do you see the the people in the feast? It's like the the square. It's like the courtyard in the middle of the town. Mm -hmm. So the drawing is a top-down picture of a food-secure neighborhood. Yes, so in the middle, there's a feast, which I also came up with for an idea of a food-secure neighborhood. And you see all the people? Yes. Do you see that one hairy one? Yes. That's the Grinch. Oh. Because I, when I was doing this, I thought of that scene from the Grinch. I love that scene. He cuts the roast beast, but everyone's there. Yeah. That's really the most radical part of the story. It's not the fact that there's this green hairy guy who lives in a mountain. It's mm-hmm. the fact that everyone's singing. Um, everyone in the town is singing on Christmas and sitting down at the same table. That's it's just mm-hmm. such a wondrous idea to me. And I don't think it should be false because then it sounds kind of cult-like. Yeah. But what I thought community... the hairy person was was Florence Pugh from Midsummer. So... 
Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's some Midsummer vibes to it. Yeah. <laughs> but not, not in a cult way, in a the Grinch stole Christmas way. Yes, yes. Okay, so there's a feast, which I think is a really excellent idea because if we're producing food on a really local level, I think it's important to share. Yeah, well, what I thought you were going to say when you said that that group, Square Roots, mm-hmm. that they just bag everything up mm-hmm. and sell it, was I thought you were going to say they just cook it all. Yeah. But I guess that's more like a homeless shelter, but it's, it's mm-hmm. a nice idea. But we've volunteered at this community garden where they do have a space where they create meals with the food that they harvest and mm. people just come yeah. and eat. And it's not just a soup kitchen. It's like everyone comes and eats and contributes to the garden in a little bit, but they also contribute to the cooking and the cleaning. But I think that's an important part of it because not everyone can be a farmer. But maybe someone could do the dishes or someone could prepare or someone could... I'll chop. Chop. There we go. Going out from the feast, there's public fountains. Yes which are important for access to water. Mm -hmm. There is a variety of seeds. Yep. So you just mean not monocultures? No, no, those are just dots. That's how I drew them. I just think, I wasn't really thinking about which seeds, just that idea of seeds, so important. I was envisioning in um, (laughs) in like elementary school, (laughs) in like elementary school, having a seed week where the kids all saw them and like, you know how whenever... You'd have a themed lesson in elementary school, which was really, mm-hmm. which was rather rare. The teacher would bring, oh, here's a fossil. They'd bring it in and they'd pass yeah. it around. I was envisioning it just with a bucket of seeds. You can see them all. Why is this one curved? Why is this one round? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like a lot of kids don't see seeds that often. No, I think they it's a great idea. Seeds. And also it raises this question of, because with seeds, I think I wrote variety. Yes. Variety of seeds. Mm-hmm. This idea that there are 400,000 plants in the world, roughly half of which are edible Mm -hmm. but like over half of our calories from plants comes from three different crops crops yes which is rough so when it's a variety i wanted to talk about perhaps this contradiction between variety and localized diet Mm -hmm. yeah the thing is we eat this weirdly localized diet but it's this locale which doesn't actually exist it's the it exists in someone's mind and they said corn Flour and potatoes. That's you what mean we're gonna... North America? Yeah. We're but eating... it's not actually one specific geographical place where just naturally these three things were of abundant. Of course. There's, yeah, there's not a lot of cows in where we used to live in Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. but everyone eats a lot of beef. Yes. Because it's Canadian, North American, generic. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's anything per se wrong with that. I wrote localization, but also have a train coming into the picture. Mm-hmm. They're not all localization. Yeah. Because I think that would just... I mean, that's just moving backwards, I think, personally. Mm-hmm. But... I do think that perhaps we shouldn't grow bananas here. Perhaps it's about the growing, mm-hmm. you know, but we can grow things from other, because there are similar climates to here mm-hmm. around the world where things are endemic. So like yeah. there's a lot of Asian vegetables that would comfortably grow here. Mm-hmm. They just don't, Yeah, but they could. So I think as long as you do things with an eye towards ecosystem security and invasive species and things like that, mm-hmm. it's always good to have, I love bok choy. Yeah. I think variety is super important. And also, if we started eating super local, we'd eat so much stuff that we don't normally. Like, you and I have started trying to eat, like, a variety of root vegetables, even as an example. Mm. And it's like, yeah, beets grow here and turnips grow here, but we never really ate them because we're just it's easier to eat potatoes. It's true. So, I think it could be a very colorful diet. And also, Oh, you, you have, mean it might actually force people to eat more stuff than they usually do? Yeah. Yeah, I get you. Because you have here calendar around harvest which i think is important because we'd be eating seasonally 
You can't have apples all year round. Yes. No, but course. you could have them for three months of the year and then you make apple jelly and you freeze some. Yeah, I mean, I, I still think we should preserve foods. I, I, I yeah. don't think we should go back exclusively to how things used to be. Mm-hmm. But when I say calendar around the harvest, my idea for it was more cultural in the fact that now our months, our seasons, our holidays are so divorced from any ideas of equinoxes and planting and harvests and feasts because we just don't do those things anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think the general consensus would be, well, we've moved past that. We don't need to anymore. We have factories. We have centralized food. We can have apples year round. So why, why the calendar? That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. My response would be that those things are culture. Like that's what culture mm-hmm. is. So when you try and uh, create a culture, which is essentially what we've done now by stripping Mm -hmm. away all the things that used to form culture, Mm -hmm. we end up with this weird inertia where no one knows what culture is and it moves too fast and yet at the same time, never. Yes. Because there's no grounding. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. The holidays don't make any sense anymore. Mm -hmm. So you also have a store here, which I think is important. Yeah. People probably think in a degrown society, oh, I want subway, I have to go harvest my tomatoes. <laughs> no, like there's a store. Not everyone's a farmer. Yeah. And my case study, I'll just like reference it right quick because it's not super long. It's in a city in Ghana. And there's a thousand people who are in a living off of the community farms that they have constructed in this town. But everyone other than those thousand people buy from them. But they mm-hmm. can see the community gardens. They know the farmers. Yeah, of course. And just creates healthy food sovereign communities because right now there's hundreds of thousands of farmers across the world, millions, but we don't know any of them. (laughs) And so we're not going to care about the food waste as much about their livelihoods, about their conditions even, but you're going to care about these people. And also if the food chain broke now or the supply chain, we'd be screwed. But in this case, the food chain between these thousand people and then the say 9,000 of the people who live in the community Mm It's not going to break down so easily. No, it's not going to break down. The reason I have the train and the, I said not everything local is because it might be um, it might be less victim to supply chains, but localized food production is more vulnerable to drought. weather. Yeah. So that's why it's it's still exactly. important to. You know, that's why these things make sense. Like I'm not mm-hmm. ignorant to that fact. Yeah, and that's why collaboration is just key. We don't want a bunch of super isolated communities. We want global community, but also made up of a bunch of tiny communities. A couple more things in your image is rooftop gardens, which I think is a good idea. Yeah, it doesn't have to be on the roof, but just if you're in an apartment building, be a part of it, something mm-hmm. like that. Also, well, you don't even have to be in an apartment building if you're in a neighborhood, yeah. but your yard is small. Um, last year when we went apple picking, mm-hmm. that was really fun. Neither of us farm, but mm-hmm. it was like, oh, there's a farm nearby. Yeah. Let's go pick some apples. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, that was a that was a, a grounding experience. Because these people, they don't need to eat all those apples they made. They let <laughs> other people have the apples. <laughs> Who would have thought? We also learned a lot about apples. We do know all the types now. Which is why I had that little thing there, education. Yes. I feel like we should know more about how to make food, how mm-hmm. things grow. Yeah. From a young, young age. Mm-hmm. Because you were saying when we were picking apples, you were like, there's so many on the ground. And the farmers were like, yeah, it's a good thing because then the nutrients are going to go back in and you have apples next year. Mm-hmm. If none of the apples followed, the soil would degrade over time. Yeah. But we didn't know that. You have to learn it. And 
kids love to learn about food so you get to taste it it's true i remember there were like two years in elementary school where they had a fruit day fruit day did you have a fruit day no i didn't and i don't know why it was a school-wide thing and they just had in each classroom they have a basket of fruit with like star fruits and grapefruits and like fruits that none of us had ever tried because we all just ate apples and bananas and we were all kind of boring we were like whoa what are these pomegranates and it happened for two years and i remember the kids going nuts over it i still i wouldn't have known that i liked pomegranates if it hadn't been for that day in grade two yeah because <laughs> my mom never bought a pomegranate because why would she like she didn't know what it was basically so it's important and kids love it yeah did you dress up as a fruit no that's how I envision fruit day. Okay, that, that can happen. You're banana day for you right now. And the last two things you have. One is something with the senses, the vibes. So there's a rooster oh, in the no, morning. Those two symbols mean smells and sounds. Okay, smells and because sounds. <laughs> I didn't want to just focus on the, la- on the looks. So there's a rooster in the morning, which I think is good. It's a communal sound. It's a communal wake up. Yeah. Woken up by the earth itself. Yeah, when we were in Mexico, there were roosters in the morning. Loved it. And we were, I was like, to my host brother, I was like, does he go every morning? And then he was like, yeah, it's very annoying. But I was like, but it's kind of cool because everyone's up because of this yeah, crazy in, rooster. Um, actually, <laughs> where I used to live in Nova Scotia, there was a rooster on the few streets over. Mm-hmm. And um, pretty much anywhere you would go, you could start a conversation with people about that darn rooster like yeah. everyone just be griping about it because mm-hmm. no one agreed to it they thought it was like an infringement or something but i just thought it was hilarious yeah it is funny. how everyone knew it. it was like a local celebrity yeah you also have compost smells mm, pleasant well i just i wanted to let's not uh, romanticize it too much yeah it's gonna be compost not gonna smell good. compost and bells yeah that's not food related to ward off the crows, maybe. It could be to ward off the crows. It could be to alert. Hey, the feast is ready, guys. Mm. I guess I'm just in Christmassy mood. Yeah. <laughs> the cranberry sauce. If we were to have a podcast sound that plays at the beginning of each episode, I think bells would be a good... Version. Or wooden wind chimes. One and the other. Well, the thing with bells is that people only ever hear them for Christmas. Mm. So people are like, oh, I love Christmas bells. And it's like, no, you just like noise, but we never get yeah. it any other time. <laughs> Pleasant noise. We get lots of unpleasant noise, I yeah, think. True, true. And you have healthy and more communal, little bit solar punk. Can you explain? Yeah, because I think the vision of the town is not exactly all degrowth. There's a little bit of solar punk, i.e., for people who don't know what solar punk is, it's kind of this aesthetic or this vision which combines eco modernism with degrowth a little bit, I would say. Mm-hmm. So there is technological innovation that helps you return to these more communal traditional green mm-hmm. lives is degrowth dark green environmentalism then solar punk is like bright green is that yeah the... yeah those are synonyms i mean those yes those are yeah so if anyone things. like doesn't know those two words that we're using those are another thing you can look up and it might be easier to find the actual visuals if mm-hmm. you want to healthy and communal i just meant communal i was referring to the apple picking experience that we had because yes. it wouldn't have been so fun if it was just us there yeah because there was a guy with a tractor who was towing everyone around mm-hmm. which was really fun and with healthy, I was thinking a lot of this stuff would um, require money to implement. Mm-hmm. But that money could kind of be taken out of the healthcare budget a little bit because people would be healthier. Mentally, definitely. No, I think like physically. But also physically. We were talking about, about COVID. Mm-hmm. It's like a really good long-term solution to protection against diseases like that would be to invest money into healthier food. 
mm-hmm. then hospitals eventually would get less. Yeah, it's like very long term. We always want short term, but if people had healthier food, more active lifestyles, yeah, it would just be better for everyone. And then the healthcare system would be less stressed, which is great for everyone because then you're not suffering, suffering from heart disease. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And also there'd be decreases in infrastructure budgets. Like you wouldn't have to be paving roads and paying for all of the... Highways would, I mean, that would be a reduction as well. Yeah. We but we're going to talk about transportation next week. Yeah, but I think there'd be some money for it from other places. Food security is also really... It's a little bit too practical there. I don't have a conversation. No, no, no. I, don't okay. know, I don't want to talk about where money comes from. Sorry for bringing that up. Thanks, Aaron. (laughs) I almost derailed the whole vibe. Yeah, it's supposed to be an imaginative exercise. Yes. Anyway. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Bye.